You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, you know what that means when you hear the cadence call. That means that we've got a show, and the show involves a veteran, and he it's called Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And we've got to remember that time period and our veterans that served during that, that time. And uh, we have we got Phil Forsberg on, and uh, Phil's going to be talking we're it's going to be a very very interesting show but uh like i started a couple of months ago and want to invite everybody that's listening either live or will listen to the podcast to uh go to our website and look at the j roy ritchie memorial j roy died from the effects of agent orange recently and we decided to start a J. Roy Memorial Veteran Prayer Line. And uh, if you're a veteran and or you know a veteran that needs prayer, is having a hard time with something or the other, please don't hesitate to uh, let us know. And we'll see that veterans around the world, across the country and around the world, will remember them in their prayers. And uh, we also want to take a, a moment to salute uh, Warriors to Citizens, a great group, and we'll be hearing more about that from Rocky Blyer in a little while. And um, so, uh, as we started a few months ago, let's just take one little moment, veterans and civilians, and uh, think about our folks that are keeping us free now, in the past, and in the future. So we'll come back with Phil in one minute. Amen. Phil, how are you doing today? Doing great, I can't complain. It's a little cool out, as you know, but uh, that... Uh, I think that comes with the season, I believe it's called. And it's a little cool, but but that feels good. It's time to crack out the jackets. And as we do, I want to mention, I played a thing by uh, uh, Frankie Holbrook that has Shine His Light. And she's a street minister that works with the homeless. And it just kills me that one out of four of the homeless in Atlanta are veterans. And we have to do something about it. I don't have all the answers. I know if you got extra blankets or you got anything, that a jacket, a coat that you're not using or not wearing, and can donate it to Frankie Holbrook and her Shine His Light ministry, I know she would appreciate it and... Your brothers and sisters that are homeless would appreciate it as well. And uh, with that being said, what are we going to talk about today, Phil? You know, since I was flying these uh, 
intelligence collection platforms was I ever involved in any direct combat action. And uh, I told you, yeah, I, uh, in fact, had uh, uh, called in targets on the uh, highway of death, they called it, uh, that was basically, it ran out of uh, Kuwait City up toward Basra. And uh, we, uh, you know, that was the main evacuation route the uh, Iraqi troops took when uh, when they, we started the ground war. And, uh, of course, they went all along that road. I mean, that was their main route. But uh, on that, that one particular day was when we had all our uh, uh, target engagements. They were, uh, they would fan out from there along into the desert and... Uh, <clears throat> we, uh, on that one particular day, I called in, uh, 66 targets, uh, that, uh, were apparently neutralized. That's an amazing number. And, uh, that, I think that one day probably, uh, demoralized the Iraqi troops more than any other day. And they just said, this is too overwhelming. Well, you know, like I said uh, before, uh, they had all Soviet equipment, and they even had some Soviet advisors there, and so uh, all of our stuff was designed to counter Soviet equipment in a, in a war across Europe, and uh, so we had a chance to try it out against somebody using Soviet uh, equipment and Soviet uh, doctrine. Um, it was it was pretty effective. Um, and of course, they weren't near as uh, put together as the uh, Soviet uh, forces. So uh, it was a nice little scrimmage there. <clears throat> I think it was had a large part to do with um, the Soviet Union. About a year later, just kind of cashing the whole thing in and saying we aren't doing this anymore. You know, 66 call-ins, I think that's an amazing number. How long were you in the air? Well, at that point in the war, the uh, our missions were about nine hours of flying in a day, and I would typically do one of those every other day. Um, so we had, to, <clears throat> we had to fly up close to the front, refuel, then get out about uh, 20 minutes into the uh, transit to the mission area, get the handoff from the guy ahead of us to relieve him, and then we'd be on track for six hours. Then we would uh, fly over. Uh, once we were relieved, we would fly over to uh, the Corps headquarters, drop off our uh, imagery, refuel, and fly back to our base down by uh, Dahran. And... Uh, so altogether, it was about nine hours, but six hours in the mission area. That's amazing. Uh, Do you ever run uh, real short of fuel? Well, uh, yeah, <laughs> I did, uh, but that was because when I came back to our base, I had plenty of fuel, but uh, <clears throat> the. Um, the guy who was in charge of the base was also in charge of the A-10s there, and he had somehow decided that he was going to shut down all the uh, navigational aids and the runway lights um, 
when he was not launching and recovering A-10s. Okay. So I showed up, uh, and a, a ground fog had covered the airport, and uh, now, you know, of course I had a weather report that said uh, everything was going to be great when I got back, but it wasn't. And um, <clears throat> so, and I, there were no uh, notices to airmen saying that they were going to shut down all these things. So uh, anyway, when I got back, it took me six approaches to get in. And uh, I had a, on my fifth go round, uh, which is when you, you abort the uh, landing attempt, uh, I had uh, a solid 20-minute fuel uh, exhaustion light on. Um, and I, they finally got me in. Uh, they <clears throat> there were some C-130s uh, at the same time that had come from Germany, and you know they were complaining about this wasn't in the NOTAMs, and uh, uh, you know I think they realized they had kind of overstepped their authority by doing this, and uh, so they were quick. But they told me that they had to drive 20 minutes to a place to get to the controls for the runway lights, turn them on. Um, and it was, well, I only had, uh, I needed a truck. The fog was so thick. I needed a truck to, uh, guide me to my parking spot. And, uh, I couldn't see the taxi. And by the time I got to my parking spot, one of my engines had shut down. And, uh, but if it had taken me much longer, the other one would have shut down. I had already given the uh, ejection briefing to my uh, right seater, <laughs> Sergeant Francis, and uh, and uh, he was a little incredulous when, when we had to go around on the on that fifth approach. He just looked at me and he said, "What are we going to do, sir?" I said, "We're going to do exactly what they say one more time, and if we don't break out, I'm going to point this out toward the soft sand." I want you to keep your back straight, use the upper handle, and I'll meet you by the wreck. <laughs> and because uh, I, <clears throat> I never used the term eject once we were off the ground, unless that's what I wanted you to do. So that's that was my little briefing to him. If we didn't make it in on that approach, then we were uh, we were going to sell the airplane back to the taxpayers <laughs> for uh, scrap, right? Yeah. Or mm. maybe, you know, they put it on a stick outside of VFW or something. <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, always something, huh? Yeah, that was, uh, <clears throat> that was a very uncomfortable day for me. I, I can imagine. Uh, I never ran out of fuel, and uh, I, that was one thing that when I was flying general, I, you know, I made sure that I I just doubled and double checked and never had a situation like yours where where uh, there was no choice involved. I I was such a chicken pilot anyway that uh, anyway. So okay, the highway of death. And do you know who named it that? Was it Schwarzkopf? No, I think it might have been CNN or somebody um, that was grandstanding. I don't think. Uh, General Schwarzkopf really had anything to do with that. Well, he had named uh, some other areas, I think, at one time or the other. But uh, 
anyway, uh, it, it definitely was a highway of death. And I remembered, uh, or I, I remember watching the, as it was coming across the news, uh, and it was, um, I don't want to say a pigeon hunt, but uh, <laughs> they sure didn't have any big trees to hide behind. No, and, you know, it's not like they weren't warned, you know. Yeah. They were told, we mean to get you out of there. And um, they were very quick to get the way, get out of the way of uh, our forces coming up into Kuwait. The Marines had the sector uh, for Kuwait City. Uh, they were uh, reinforced with uh, one brigade from the 2nd Armored Division, the Tiger Brigade. Uh, with their M1 tanks. Marines didn't have M1s during Desert Storm. But uh, that M1 proved to be quite a fantastic piece of equipment. Um, there, I got a report from a guy told me that uh, they came up over a berm, and just as they did, they saw five Iraqi uh, tanks that were in a retrograde, you know, backing up over the next berm, and one of them shot at them, and, and they took in uh, uh, just rapid fire, got all five of the Iraqi tanks while moving, which is just just amazing. Oh, yeah. What, what was the... Uh, so, you were in coordination with the Air Force, correct? Yeah. <clears throat> so, my aircraft, the OV-1 Mohawk, had a system on it called side-looking airborne radar, and we were finding... Uh, moving targets on the ground. It's a little bit like AWACS, except AWACS looks for things moving in the air, and this looked for things moving on the ground. And <clears throat> there was a... <clears throat> during, during the build-up, we used our, our SLAR equipment to determine uh, the troop concentrations, where they were, when they moved, what their main supply routes were. Uh, we had all that mapped out. And, uh, of course, the high-altitude bombers, they um, they used all the intelligence that we had developed throughout the course of uh, getting ready. And uh, so when they were bombing, you know, they'd come all the way from Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean. And they weren't, they weren't just dropping their bombs blind in the desert. They were dropping them on places that we told them with great reliability that there would be enemy troops and uh, and then uh, once the ground war started and we were going in uh, now now we were flying over Iraqi uh, dirt and uh, we uh, we had a capability to uh, to get lat long or the, the position on the ground for uh, these moving targets and so uh, we did uh, kind of a battle handoff of these targets. Uh, the Air Force uses a, a command and control aircraft, a C-130, that's kind of like a flying uh, operations center. Um, and uh, it's called the AB-CCC, which is uh, uh, Airborne Battlefield Command and Control Center. And uh, we... Uh, would pass those targets to the AB C, and then they would hand them out to uh, 
Army or I'm a well, it could be Army or Air Force or Navy or Marine Corps aircraft that were uh, capable of doing something about it on the ground. And so, uh, you know, we would we would feed them the targets, and then they would assign them to the various uh, aircraft to destroy them. So it was it was mainly uh, air attack, no artillery, or uh, I guess. Uh, a naval ship could have fired and, and reached them, but uh, what you're saying is mostly it was uh, strictly air? Yeah, air assets were the ones that were assigned to the targets that I was finding because, you know, it was a matter of, uh, <clears throat> well, they were far from our ground forces, and uh, but getting closer all the time, not because they were coming to us, but our forces were going to them. But uh, the, uh, yeah, so we we would pass it to uh, AB Triple C, and they they would hand it off to some aircraft uh, that could uh, neutralize the target. A lot of times it'd be A ten, or it could be F fifteen, F sixteen, F eighteen, maybe. Uh, in some cases, it may have been Apaches. Hmm. You know, it's uh, interesting. Uh, one one. Okay, you call something in. How long would it generally take to uh, get a response? Well, I didn't. <clears throat> I didn't. You know, these targets were so far. You know, uh, I had a pretty good standoff capability with my SLAR. So uh, <clears throat> typically, uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't see the results of what was going on on the ground, and uh, so. Uh, they would uh, I, I didn't really get to know when they were destroyed however after we landed uh, on that particular day we did have a report they called back to our unit and they just wanted to let us know that one of the targets we neutralized was a uh, well <clears throat> a BM-21 battalion hmm. uh, so BM-21 is a Soviet made uh, rocket launcher battalion and uh, so whoever was assigned, maybe an A-10 or something, went to blow that up. Um, they said the secondary explosions from uh, firing up their uh, their ordnance against the, uh, you know, rocket launchers was pretty significant. Oh, yeah. You know, like Fourth uh, of July kind of thing. <laughs> One of the reasons that I ask, as a um, first lieutenant, my son was an uh, uh, ordnance officer, and he would decide uh, in the Air Force would decide what ordnance this plane or that plane would be carrying. And so, uh, would that be something your Triple uh, C would do, or <clears throat> uh, you know, they were actually talking to targets that were already in flight. So uh, the you know selecting the ordnance mix was uh, kind of already done. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, most of these folks, you know, they knew what they were going against. I mean, you know, Geneva Convention has uh, certain prohibitions. You can't use certain weapons against uh, certain targets, like, for instance, against personnel. Um, you couldn't use a, a fifty caliber machine gun against personnel. So, you know, we would... You know, just use a fifty cal against say uniforms. Hmm. That's equipment. You see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, 
So that was our little workaround. Interesting. Now, if there are people in those uniforms, well. <laughs> Such is life, huh? That's <laughs> right. Well, Shouldn't have been wearing an enemy uniform. Yeah, that's right. You know, uh, this is what, and, and I know just enough to be quasi-dangerous, but uh, this is what a lot of folks don't understand what's going on, you know, before the first rifle is fired, really. And uh, then as you expand theater, all sorts of things change. And uh, you come in, the Mohawk, and so forth and so on. And and uh, decisions are being, like, like you said, in the uh, uh, AAA or, or Triple C, uh, those people are having to make split-second decisions, and uh, there's just it—it's a big war game, and it's not a game; it's lives. But um, there's so many things that are happening. It's—it's it's, it's almost like I've always been amazed at an aircraft carrier. How do they get them up, and how do they get them down, and how do they do it so quickly? But then when you've got a, a theater like you're in, a whole desert, and you've got things going on. Oh, let me let me ask. With your, with your piece of equipment on the Mohawk, uh, could you uh, determine friend or foe? Nope. <clears throat> that we couldn't do, um, which is kind of what made it uh, good for uh, use in, in, you know, conventional sort of warfare like Desert Storm because, you know, beyond a certain line, unless we had knowledge that we had sent some folks in there, beyond a certain line, we would know, you know, it's uh, more than likely enemy. And, you know, these guys... You know, flying the, the fast movers that were neutralizing the targets. Um, well, you know, there were we we did have uh, um, friendly fire mishap there, but pretty much, you know, they're they're held very responsible for uh, for what they're shooting at. So they don't just uh, pop in there and get the coordinates and blow it up just because I said something on the ground moved there. Okay, they, so they would typically have eyes on it we uh and we're probably the most um cognizant country in the world about collateral damage and the the avoiding of any collateral damage or friendly fire for that matter so we're as you were going in were you taking uh flak uh there was one time when uh uh, AWACS, they were kind of doing an overwatch of us, and uh, they were uh, supposed to let us know. Now, the, the air war hadn't started at this point, and um, so, you know, using certain code words, code words uh, AWACS was telling me that there was an Iraqi fighter. He was just kind of broadcasting this out to everybody listening, but there was an Iraqi fighter uh, a certain distance and azimuth from me. And he was getting closer, you know, in subsequent reports and closer and closer. And I was waiting for the code word that meant 
you know, break off your track and, and head for the house. Uh, and just before he got uh, that close to where he could have fired a, what they call a fire and forget missile at me, um, he broke off the, uh, his engagement of me and uh, headed back north into Iraq again. And uh, not too much longer after that, I was kind of kicking back on my, you know, reconnaissance track, reading the paperback book. And suddenly my uh, radar warning receiver alerted me. I looked up and it indicated I had a friendly fighter at my 7 o'clock position. Uh, well, it was not entirely comforting to me as a friendly <laughs> fighter because I didn't know exactly if the software could discriminate the Iraqis. I think they did have some F-4 Phantoms, and they had some uh, some uh, French Mirage jets. So I wasn't entirely certain it was a friendly fighter, but uh, later I found out why the Iraqi fighter had uh, disengaged from me when I saw the uh, British Tornado fighter uh, <laughs> show up in my 7 o'clock position. He uh, kind of took a look at me, saw it, and said, did it painted on the side of my airplane said United States Army so I saluted him he saluted me and then he peeled off so he was doing a mission they call combat air patrol where uh, they were doing overwatch of you know what was in our area uh, including me um, necessarily for my mission I had to uh, fly a, a, a gyro stabilized uh, track at a very slow speed at a very constant altitude. Not the most challenging target for a fighter pilot. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I was uh, kind of hanging it out there. But um, the uh, combat air patrol and uh, this one British tornado pilot had him, uh, made him go somewhere else. So I was very happy about that. And then uh, once, you know, we've, we really flew outside of uh, small arms range, about uh, 10,000 feet and above. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, they, I guess they could have fired a, uh, a radar-guided missile at us. However, uh, because we had found all their radars uh, during the days leading up to the engagement, we... Um, first thing we did the first day of the air war we blew up all their radar transmitters so they were kind of blind i did have a mission i was flying at one point and uh i was a little unclear if uh if we were supposed to make the switch over on our comsec gear uh at at midnight local or midnight zulu and i think there was about a four hour difference and uh that uh at midnight Zulu, I suddenly got uh, acquired by uh, an SA-6, was a Soviet uh, air defense. Uh, it's actually, the radar is called a, a straight flush radar, and it said it was engaging me from the friendly side, and I realized that I was flying through one of, one of our allies in that coalition, that uh, Gulf coalition, with the Syrians. And uh, Syria had SA-6 missiles, Soviet, uh, and, of, of course, a straight-flush radar that went with them. So I said, I wonder if he's going to stop painting me if I switch over 
to my new code because it had just gone to uh, Midnight Zulu. So I switched over and he stopped acquiring me. So uh, I guess I got my answer there. <laughs> you know, like I said, there are so many things that go on. And uh, I was just picturing what you were doing at the moment. And, uh, you know, talking about multitasking, uh, I don't know what the fourth or fifth level is of of, of that is, but uh, you were doing a bunch of it all the time. Just flying a plane is multitasking, and uh, you've got a you've got a lot to watch, even uh, when it's on on automatic pilot. But uh, what if there was one thing? Had you ever experienced anything like uh, the highway of death before? Uh, well, uh, I I did some stuff uh, earlier on of a classified nature. Uh, that, I, but yeah, I, I experienced something like that before. Um, but it wasn't. Uh, wasn't in that theater yeah well I, I won't go any further than that but it, you know it's uh it was amazing the shots that and the destruction the next day that they uh that some of the film crews uh were able to take and send back uh or satellite back to us uh, that was uh if they had chuckles before, they had a bunch of them afterwards. Yeah. Um, somebody told me that at the start of the war, uh, Iraq had the uh, fifth largest army in the world. And uh, they did have 41 divisions. Uh, by the end, we had rendered 39 of those uh, divisions combat ineffective. Hmm. Um, so, and you know, when you have things on paper, you know, these divisions on paper, that's all well and good. I guess you can let it intimidate you, but in fact, uh, you know, they, their troops were not loyal to Saddam, uh, by and large. There were some like in the, uh, oh, what they call the Republican guards, uh, divisions that, sort of their SS um, group they weren't I guess they were more loyal than these others I, I can imagine you know a lot of the folks weren't all that uh, thrilled in laying down their life for Saddam who had probably brutalized their own family um, that comes with the territory of being a dictator I guess right let's uh, let's stop here and take a quick break we'll be back with Phil Forsberg, right after this, talking about the highway of death uh, during Desert Storm. We'll be right back after this message. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. 
This is Rocky Blyer, and I hope you'll make plans to join us on January 28th for Warriors for Hope. I'm thrilled to be a part of this virtual fundraiser for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital and Warrior to Citizen. These organizations do so much to support veterans, first responders, and families who've been touched by pediatric cancer. I'd also like to thank David Moxley and his show, David's Pick, here on America's Web Radio, for supporting Warriors for Hope. And I know you'll want to join in and support this event as well on January 28th. So visit warriorsforhope.events. That's warriors and the number four, hope.events. You can make a gift and reserve your seat for this virtual benefit. Again, that's warriors and the number four, hope.events. Thanks for your support, and I'll see you at noon on January 28th. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And we do appreciate you listening, and uh, I want to turn the tables on Rocky Blyer and thank him for doing the promos about the upcoming event. And mark your calendar if you haven't done so already. It's going to be January the 28th at noon, and there are some Fabulous, fabulous gifts that you can bid on. Everything from uh, some guitars that are signed and many other things. And you'll be amazed at some of the people that will be joining us to uh, promote the event. January the 28th, starting at noon. Get your checkbook ready and uh, we'll all enjoy it. It'll be a fun, fun thing on January 28th. So let's get back to uh, Philip and um, his tales of the highway of death. And uh, Phil, after it, it lasted what? Basically one day or two days? Total ground combat uh, was uh, was a hundred hours. He said, which would be that'd be just about four four days, right? Four right. days to give you ninety six hours, so a little little over uh, four days of ground combat. Um, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, uh, it start, the ground conflict started about on the twenty fourth of February of ninety one. The uh, and I, I believe it, it wrapped up on the twenty eighth of February of ninety one. I, I believe the highway of death was 26 and 27 February. Hmm. Okay. I, so after it ended, did you have any cause to ever, or did you fly back and look at the damage uh, the a day or two later? No. No, it's not the kind of thing you go joyriding over there to take a look at. Um you know, whenever we flew, we had to kind of have a, a uh, reason for going where we were going. Now, at one point, I decided uh, on my way from uh, from the uh, uh, mission area back to the core uh, operations center, I decided to drop down and do some low-level flying through uh, over Iraq and... Uh, see what I could see, and I did see some uh, some hulks uh, and some destroyed equipment that was uh, rendered that way, either by our ground forces uh, or from uh, the high-altitude bombing, I would guess. But that was not over toward Kuwait. That was out 
to the west of there. Hmm. And at that point, had they uh, had Iraq started the fires? I believe they started the fires. I think they started them prior to the ground conflict, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, uh, it was, uh, yeah, they. Uh, oh, we. The fires really uh, were just kind of a nuisance. Uh, it made the. Uh, it made the. Uh, the the air you know, difficult to see through from flying from about 8,000 feet to the surface. Hmm. A couple hundred miles from where the fires were, it was still, you know, obscure in the skies. I had to do instrument approaches to get back in the base just because, uh, just because of the, the smoke. Uh, however, um, uh, that, it really, that, you know, they said that they were going to have these trenches filled with flaming oil to stop our troops. I don't think it even slowed them down. Um, they, you know, they just went through. There was a, it was an engineer unit from, uh, if I'm not mistaken, they're from the 1st Cavalry Division. They came up on a, uh, Iraqis that were all, you know, kind of wanting to do a last-ditch stand in a bunker. And uh, they had a an interpreter come with a bullhorn and announced to them that, you know, they had 30 minutes to get out of the bunker and surrender or else uh, the bunker was going down. When they didn't come out, they just uh, set charges and uh, the bunker just collapsed into the desert. And uh, so much for that. Wow. You're given a chance. Did have uh, some of the busiest folks that I can recall were, were your military police that were uh, it, heavily involved in uh, taking care of the uh, the folks who had surrendered, the, the enemy prisoners of war. Uh, there were many, many of them. I mean, whole units were surrendering. We had uh, reports that Saddam had ordered that they get uh, all be have their white T-shirts taken away so they couldn't use them as surrender flags. Um, and, uh, we had, uh, some, some Iraqis attempted to, uh, surrender to an Apache helicopter at one point, which of course Apache has no real means of dealing with those people. No, no humane, humane way of dealing with those people anyway. So, uh, yeah, they just had to radio for somebody to come and accept the surrender. Well, I guess uh, the old saying fits, don't bite off more than you can chew. And I think Saddam, as he was hiding in the cave, realized that he had bitten off more than he could chew. Yeah. Well, you know, and as we had discussed earlier, uh, when, you're a, when you're a dictator and you're, you're governing by, you know, Terror and uh, and violence, and uh, really have no way of, of turning into uh, a good guy. Yeah, uh, just it, it just doesn't work. It's hard to build uh, loyalty, huh? Yeah. And I, you know, 
Did you did you have any or much personal contact with any of the uh, Iraqis themselves, the uh, soldiers or anybody? With Iraqis, no, no, not with Iraqis. Um, I had a uh, little bit of dealing with some of the uh, Saudi soldiers uh, from time to time. I would go over to the uh, to the Saudi air base. Uh, they were all good guys. The uh, and then of course. You know, when Kuwait was overrun, there were hundreds of uh, Kuwaiti young men that were in the United States studying, and uh, usually, you know, the children of some fairly well-off Kuwaitis, and uh, of course, everything had been, uh, you know, all all their homes and and families had all been, you know, captured by... uh, these Iraqi soldiers who were being quite impolite. Uh, anyway, so uh, the, uh, our unit, you know, we needed for our uh, communications intelligence, we needed translators. Being geared up for, a, you know, a war in Europe, we, uh, all our translators spoke uh, German and Polish and uh, Russian. And uh, so... We need. We were in desperate need of Arabic translators, and it just so happened that uh, the army, in a very uh, wonderful plan, collected up all these uh, Iraqi college students that all volunteered. They wanted to uh, do something for the fight, and uh, they gave them a quick class in uh, how to wear the uniform and how to be a soldier, and uh, they gave them all interim top secret security clearances and then uh, gave them all the official rank of uh, E5 sergeant and, uh, and then sent them uh, to us and they filled in and they sat in our positions and uh, those were really some fantastic young men uh, you know their, their Arabic skills were excellent their English was good and you know good enough to be a college student in the states and uh, they just did a fantastic job uh, because not only did they know the language and, and the dialects and, and all, but they also, um, they even knew some of the places that were being talked about uh, on the radio when they were, they were intercepting uh, Iraqi uh, transmissions. They could tell you exactly where they were. Okay. You know, I remember one, one time a, a fellow said, uh, I know where this guy is. He's a... Uh, He's at a Seven Eleven. It's about two blocks from my house. Huh. That's funny. Uh, it no, was, let me it was ask quite you. A, uh, an emotional day after uh, the Emir of Kuwait went back into Kuwait and took took the city, and took the, the country back, and then we had to say goodbye to all these guys. And oh, they were just you know tearful and and hugging us and. Uh, you know, t- you know, just saying, you know, t- asking God's blessing on us for uh, what we had done to help. So it was, uh, they were all Kuwaitis, right? Those were all Kuwaitis, yeah. Hmm. Well, that was fortunate that they happened to be here and wanted to join the fight. Yeah, they, and they were very valuable. Interesting. You know, this, this is one reason we do these shows is that I I can't say whether that's written down somewhere or not. I don't know, but 
it's interesting from my point of view to hear things that I certainly didn't know about and uh, the bits and pieces that put it all together. And that's certainly uh, that there's no way of knowing how much that helped our efforts and uh, in a quick victory. It was uh, it was very good, you know. With uh, we we put all our intelligence together. We had uh, the some aircraft that could find their radars and locate them and identify what kind of radars they were on the ground. We had other aircraft like I flew that had the <clears throat> ability to find the movers on the ground, and then we had other aircraft that would listen in on their conversations. We would find the locations of their transmitters and, you know, get the uh, information they were talking about on the radio. They put it all together, and it, it gives quite a good picture of, uh, of what's going on there. Uh, and then they just put it up on a big board, and then the general makes a decision. You know, again, it was just a... Just, uh, very interesting that I wonder who convinced her if he was such a narcissist that Hussein thought he could really do it and get away with it. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think he had any choice. I think it all sort of started with him um, trying to uh, uh, set the price of oil in the area. He was uh, upset with the Kuwaitis that they were, uh, um, you know, ruining the oil market by producing too much. And and then at one point he started to uh, accuse them of uh, going sort of horizontally with their drilling and and sucking oil out of uh, wells that were rightfully Iraqis. And I don't know if there's any truth to that or not. But uh, he was, uh, you know, he was getting pretty greedy, I guess. And, um, and then to the point where he just said, well, I'm, you know, this is rightfully uh, another province of Iraq. Which is kind of laughable, considering the fact that uh, the whole nation of Iraq was just a uh, sort of a something that resulted from the First World War. Um, it was, you know, never was a country. It just when they when they dissolved the Ottoman Empire, they had to come up with things. They they drew lines and said, you know, these are now countries. They found some guy walking by and say, you're now the king of fill in the blank. And uh, there you go. Hmm. So would would you say that? We did a good job of getting our stuff together and in a in a very fast manner, to say the least. And then uh, as strong as we are, we got it in country relatively fast and reacted relatively fast. Would, uh, would you say that was pretty well a true statement? I don't know from the from the first first shot to our first boots on the ground. I don't know how long it took. Thirty days. 
Well, uh, Iraq invaded uh, invaded Kuwait, I think, on the 2nd of August, maybe. And uh, we set up our troops. We had, by the 7th of August, we had uh, 15,000 troops in, in country in Saudi Arabia. Um, some of the first in, of course, was the 82nd Airborne Division. Um, great guys, but, you know, when you're going up against tanks, uh, they certainly have their limitations. So most of the role the 82nd played in there was, uh, you know, being the stopgap. Uh, I mean, it's, it's hard to say it, but, you know, it basically let Saddam know that if he came with his tanks any further, he'd be killing Americans. Um, and, uh, they don't, you know, I mean, they have, they have anti-tank capability, but it's nowhere near what you have in a armored division or a mechanized infantry division. And how quick was air support there? Oh, very quick. I mean, they set up those combat air patrols uh, in a matter of a few days. Uh, and, of course, they were in a big hurry to get our uh, Mohawks there uh, because we could, you know, we would be uh, an early warning if they were moving toward the border in any significant uh, concentration. So we, we actually arrived with all our stuff on the 24th of September, I believe, uh, 1990. And uh, that was quite a task because um, we were a very low-priority unit uh, for repair parts and manning and stuff like that uh, back in the States. And they, they spun us up to ready to go. I should say our our ground forces were there on uh, you know our, our ground people were there and I arrived there on the 24th of September our aircraft didn't start arriving until mid-October I would say and by the end of October of, two, of 1990 we were flying um, reconnaissance missions uh, and surveillance missions across uh, the, the front so, you know, wasn't it may it may not seem that fast, but you know, going from a standing start uh, uh, was pretty quick, and I can tell you, it was a lot of effort. Oh yeah, I, <laughs> to have done what we did, I, I find it totally amazing, and uh, the cooperation of all the branches. Uh, the Navy had to be very involved in uh, shipping and. You know, and the Air Force involved in getting their fighters flown over there, and I guess, uh, I guess we we had to get permission from Saudi Arabia, as I recall, to use their air bases. Correct? Well, I think uh, at that point Saudi Arabia was screaming for us to come help them. <laughs> um, it wasn't hard to work out the details of how we would. You know, be allowed to use their bases. Uh, they they were very uh, anxious for us to get there. And I, I guess the other thing too, I wonder, 
And uh, this may be out of your, totally out of your jurisdiction, but you may have read something about it. Have we ever been reimbursed by anybody other than getting, uh, for a while, free gas from Saudi Arabia? Uh, for our for our military, I believe, and it, and you're right when you say it's above my pay grade because I I don't know, and this is kind of State Department stuff, but uh, we I think we did get quite a bit. Uh, the uh, the king of uh, Saudi Arabia, King Fahd, was was very generous to us in all sorts of resources while we were there and uh, the, uh, uh, the the Kuwait government of Kuwait was uh, very generous I think and very grateful for what we had done well so, I know I know they'd n- never use this term but we had gone in and saved their bacon uh, yeah it's be politically incorrect to say that, but um, they, uh, you know, I heard a rumor that, uh, and of course this is rumors, you know, from soldiers, so take it for what it's worth, but, you know, I had heard that the the king of uh, Saudi Arabia wanted to give every American soldier that came there, uh, you know, a gift of $10,000, and, uh, that our government had declined and uh, uh, explained that, you know, our soldiers are not mercenaries, at which point, you know, some of us were like, well, you know, speak for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take the money. (laughs) Well. So I'm sure, I'm sure they paid off in some way to our government. Uh, But uh, exactly how, I couldn't be sure. And we'll probably never know. It's most likely I'll never know. Well, me and thee, brother. But, (laughs) you know, it's... uh, uh, They at least called on the right country to help them. And, uh, you know, I'm amazed at how fast it all transpired and, and... was over with. I guess my uh, one question, which was answered uh, in a couple of years, was, you know, why we didn't finish the job while we were there initially, um, why we had to go back to finish the job. And, uh, you know, I, again, that nobody called and asked me my opinion, so, <laughs> you know. Well, uh, I can tell you, you know, when they told me it was time for me to leave, you left. I asked them to make sure, make good and sure you want me, you know, because I don't intend to come back here. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'm glad you didn't. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, actually, I did go back uh, when I was flying commercial. I actually had opportunity to go back to the same base where I'd spent six months living in a tent uh, at uh, King Fahd Airport in Vermont. But I didn't get off the plane. It was just a whistle stop. Hmm. Um, you know, 
again, this is why we, why I wanted to do this show is that uh, it was a, as wars go, as as we've seen, that war happened to be a very short war. But at the same token, it shouldn't be a forgotten war, uh, and it showed the world what the United States was made of and what it could do. And, uh, you know, even putting together the coalition in a small amount of time was impressive. And I think it showed the world what the U.S. is made of and the people, what the people of the U.S. are made of. And we can't ever let that be forgotten, in my opinion. It's... uh, something we have to deal with day in and day out and and should be very proud of you know all of our veterans no matter what they did but they stood up to a bully and uh, taught the bully a pretty good lesson and then when we went back we certainly taught him a lesson but well you know david i i'd just like to say if i may i know you get a lot of veterans listening to the show and uh, if you served in Desert Storm or if you served in Vietnam or Korea or even World War II or any of the conflicts before or after and uh, or if you just served in peacetime if you uh, are not getting the benefits that you've earned from the VA I, I just encourage you to contact a service officer from one of the veteran service organizations I do volunteer work for the DAV. I, I just wanted to get that in there, David. Oh, absolutely. And uh, which I, I want to put a plug in for the, the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame and our good, good friend, retired Colonel Rick White, that does just a fantastic job of keeping our heroes, our veterans, the pictures up on the wall and the stories that they have. And if you haven't been to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame, we certainly encourage you to go. And we'll be putting out some announcements very shortly on more about what's going on in Johns Creek and the uh, uh, healing wall, which is the 50% replica of the the wall. Well, it's the wall that traveled all over the United States, which is the replica of the uh, Vietnam Wall in Washington, D.C., with the 58,000 names of those that gave the ultimate sacrifice. So make it, put it on your plans to go to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame and to Johns Creek, Georgia, and to the Healing Wall. And uh, with that being said, Phil, Philip, thank you again for the show today, and uh, we will be in touch, and we're going to break out of here. Talk to you next time. Yes, sir. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.